You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. For previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Meet the Farmers, which is being supported by the Mercer Charitable Foundation. We're on to stop number three on the podcast road trip and I've come to meet Rob Havard on his farm in Worcestershire. Now, Will Evans got to Rob before me, so do check out Will's rock and roll farming episode with Rob and I'll try not to do too much crossover. But in short, Rob farms Aberdeen Angus cattle across around 450 acres of land, some owned, some rented, and he's come highly recommended as someone to talk about to about holistic grazing and holistic management generally. If you don't know what that means, worry not, Rob will reveal all later. Rob, thanks for having me. Um, Just to provide a bit of context, uh, can you start by just telling telling us a bit about the business um, at its core, what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, we're, uh, as you said, 450 acres across three sites. Um, So we've split sites. Um, rent a farm off the National Trust, another off um, a private landlord um, who is sort of very motivated by organic sort of principles, um, very knowledgeable as well, which is a great help. And then our home farm here uh, is just 50 acres. Um, and we are pedigree Aberdeen Angus. We're entirely grass-fed, forage-based uh, systems. So uh, the bulls, Everything that we sell, breeding bulls, heifers, nothing gets special treatment. Everything is uh, wintered out. Um, so that I, I think the idea being is that long term, looking at the way industry is going, we're going to need low input systems and we're going to need cattle that aren't pampered um, for the show ring. We're going to need cattle that thrive in um, in sort of difficult conditions or that can cope with low input systems and, and that, that's the idea is to put the business in a place where we can supply people with cattle that will work for them essentially. Right. And tell me a bit about your conservation background um, because you've had mixed experience uh, before uh, before you started full time here um, but uh, yeah tell me about your, your experience in conservation. Yeah it started off um, at university training to be a land agent um, didn't fancy that <laughs> so uh, I uh, it didn't take me long to realize that um, and I'd always been interested in the environmental side of things and ecology and like grandfather showing me all the different plants around and all that sort of stuff so um, yeah so I started doing working I think I worked for ADAS first as a uh, farm conservation advisor and um, and then on working for wildlife trusts and then uh, managed as a conservation officer and then director of a charity called the Malvern Hills uh, Trust and uh, managing 3,000 acre, uh, uh, sort of essentially a huge great big nature reserve but kind of semi-upland common land with managing with commoners and uh, grazing rights which is fabulous, love that job. Um, and then... Um, working various different professional ecologists uh, as a consultant ecologist and I, I've done that for myself and for other people um, so I've been around a bit and then amongst all that trying to make the farm work and coming back to the farm after we sold um, three parts of the farm 
in um, around 2000 while I was at university um, and then building it back up to where we are now with my, in partnership with my dad. And sticking within uh, conservation bodies really, both NGOs um, and governmental bodies as well, what did you take away from that time in terms of the way that you thought about how, how it worked um, and how effective um, it was then um, yeah. in, terms of, in terms of overall achievements? and perhaps how you think that's changed? I think when I came into work for wildlife trusts and similar organisations to that, I think there was a much, they had a much stronger, wider countryside game, if that makes sense. So the outreach to farmers and that sort of thing was a lot stronger, I think, than it is now, to be honest. Um, I came across a lot of people who are very much uh, very practical people in conservation who knew they had to work with landowners and build trust and build relationships and I think I think there's perhaps been a move away from that more recently I think you know for various reasons I guess how do you think it's because of resources or there's something else going on there um, I, I think possibly resources I think the funding has dried up a little bit all those you know with the with poor returns on on the funds that they go into charitable trusts to try and get funding and i think that perhaps has, has held things back a bit and then obviously less government funding but i think it's probably more in my opinion it's more about a change of focus on that within nature conservation more recently which has been stuff like rewilding, um, species reintroduction, and often focusing on these kind of big, fluffy kind of projects Mm -hmm. that kind of make you feel good, make you feel like you're doing something, but actually the habitat impact of what's being done is negligible. Mm. Um, And there's a lot of energy going in there. And I think also, if you start to have a culture where rewilding is going to be the answer then that means you kind of no longer need to engage with agriculture and farmers and rural communities anymore because you've got a different solution now. Can you remember when you first came across rewilding? Yeah, I can, yeah. I remember it was... Uh, Franz Vera came over. It was about 2003-04. Um, I read his book, um, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, which is a fabulous book. Um, I was totally bought into it. Um, I, and, I, and I still think his work is excellent in terms of how he kind of changed how we think about the wildwood. There was this thing within nature conservation how the whole of the UK was woodland until the evil humans cut down all the trees. And I think he showed actually that you know the pollen rain from a parkland landscape, which would have been open grazing habitat, um, was was actually pretty much identical to closed canopy woodland of the same species. Uh, but then also pointing out that hazel and oak and these kinds of species are actually pioneer species in grassland and do not persist over, say, a thousand years in woodland because they need canopy breaks to do that. And um, so you go over to, you know, those woodlands would change over time if they were just woodland all the time. I'm sensing a bud. So there is, I think there is a but. I mean, I think what, I mean, if you look what he's done in the Dutch uh, large nature reserves, so 10, 15,000 acre nature reserves, where they've put 
a lot of large herbivores in. Yeah. So there's 100%. Uh, and if you look at the book, I think that's what's an interesting thing. If you read the book, his, a lot of his focus is on grazing animals. So whether it's whether he's looking at the impact of 10,000 geese on a landscape that's coming in seasonally to graze it off and, and maintaining that as, as, as grassland um, in a wetland environment, or whether he's looking at the introduction of the het cattle and the red deer and the pon- conic ponies and, that have come into the <coughs> different um, nature reserves over there. So his focus was really grazing. And it's interesting now that if you look at the focus of rewilding, it seems to be lynx, wolves, mm. you know, not necessarily the things that are having the key ecosystem processes. And I think looking at his work, the one thing that he did miss out, uh, and he understood the fact that there wasn't the predator, they couldn't have the predators in Holland where they were doing it, and they've had these mass starvations over there. This is really not good for, you know, general public. Well, it's certainly not good for the animals. That's, you know, animal welfare-wise, it's just, it's really not good. But I think the only other thing that they was missed out was the, the fact that the migratory pattern of grazing wasn't in, included in his models. Okay. So there's the but, and I think that's, that kind of links a little bit into holistic grazing. But the fact that, you know, in natural grazing systems... Out, you know, prehistory, you know, the fossil record and what we've looked at pretty much points to the fact that these were, we know that they're nomadic, uh, migratory, migrating through the seasons, so creating rest periods in the grazing. Um, and I think that's something that's missing at the moment from rewilding. And it's partly because we just don't have big enough areas. So if you look at the Serengeti or if you look at the American plains that have got bigger, large enough areas where this can still go on. That's, that's a different thing that maybe that can happen. And there have been research reports in America, a lot of good research showing that you can't really achieve those natural grazing patterns um, with, even with predators unless you get up to about 100,000 100, acres plus. And we just don't have those areas in this country. Moving on briefly to sort of formal farmland conservation schemes, ELS, HLS, New Countryside Stewardship, how successful do you think they've been? I I think they've been a lot more successful than... Uh, they get a lot of bad press. I actually think they've done a lot. Uh, it's amazing the people who are in a scheme who you might have banter down the pub about conservation with and find out they're in a high-level stewardship scheme. Yeah. Um, everyone likes to pretend like they're the you know oh, you know we don't go in for that sort of thing until until you actually find out who's in. Um, the I also think Natural England. I'm a Natural England employee, so I would say this, but I think Natural England and particularly the lead advisors on the ground have done an amazing job. Yeah. There's some really good people who've spent their careers building relationships with farmers on the ground and have done a grand job and. And take that away, take that funding away. Essentially, it's everything we're talking about now with farmers providing natural capital, providing ecosystem services, that's everything that was in those schemes. It's already there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, we only need to do that to satisfy political demands, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it's done a lot of good. I think the latest iteration of things, and this is me speaking not as a any employee but the the latest schemes actually the options are largely the same yeah they're good options 
but the scheme architecture and the administration, um, yeah, you couldn't make it up. Mm. How bad it is. So probably shouldn't say that, but it's, <laughs> it's true. It's what everyone's thinking. Yeah. But um, so before we move on to uh, holistic management, because um, I'm interested in how you, how you sort of how you shifted towards that. Yeah. Tell me about how uh, focusing on your cattle here, really. Yeah. Um, and when your dad was managing cattle here as well, um, how how the business has adapted in terms of in terms of beef, yeah. um, and how that drew you on to holistic management and holistic grazing. Um, okay, well, I think it's kind of that process of me coming back into the farm around two thousand and three, um, renting ground here and losing ground, and then. Um, conservation grazing for nature conservation charities and all that sort of stuff make money some years lose money others lose tenancies back and forth so I'm, you know I'm used to I was kind of got used to that but it was trying to find ways of making things work essentially you know we were set stocking initially uh, and then kind of around I suppose 2008-9 we started rotationally grazing a bit more um, so I was already in that vein of, of trying to maximise growth from the grazing management. Yeah. But still it wasn't didn't seem to be paying. Um, and I think that goes into a wider conversation, if that's all right to bring that in. No, absolutely, that's what's um, going through my head. So. Is, is kind of the agricultural economics yeah. that we all face. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, the reality is you, go, you can go on a big farm with lots of big tractors... Uh, you know, they say big farm could be like you know five, six, seven hundred acre farm that previously would have been ample to make a couple of livings for a farm. Yeah. And something that big now struggles to make a single living. Yeah. Even if even even on uh, on the base on an arable farm or you know, if you actually look at all the margins, like we all know what the bloody margins are, but we're all kind of you know pretending you know. Yeah. And there's other businesses on the farm, if we're being honest that are propping up yep. the farm. And I don't blame people for that. And we've all got our pride and we want to show what, you know, that we're doing a good job. But I think I think the danger is that we kind of create a uh, a climate or a culture where people feel if the farm business isn't working and they can see someone else looks like it's going really well. But the reality reality is the margins are the same for everyone. Yeah. And they aren't bloody good. Yeah. And and so, you know, at times a lot of people are talking about mental health and that sort of thing. I think we've got to think about that a bit. Yeah. Um, but I don't blame... It's not, not a blame thing. I, I think for me it's, it's more the fact that historically farmers, we've been paid to produce below the cost of production. That's what subsidies were for. So we get paid to produce below the cost of production, but we'll get looked after mm. so people can have cheap food. And you've got the same thing now, you know, everyone in the press going mad about chlorine chicken but we're, we've been importing chicken from Thailand and the Far East for years mm. and Lord knows what the animal welfare mm. thing is you know state is on that stuff yeah. and yet we just imported in and then so we have all these welfare standards at home and then we import food in from around the world that doesn't have any of these welfare standards and then tell farmers they've got to compete on a, on the world market. Yeah. And for me, it's actually it's really difficult to gauge what it is that the public really wants because we're told in in the media that yes, people want high high uh, high animal welfare, good environmental standards, 
good quality food. 100%. Farmers to actually make a decent living, but at the same time, they also want cheap food. But is yeah. that really what people are thinking? Yeah. Well, I think this is it. Like, is there such a thing as cheap food? Yeah. What and is it? What is it? And I, and I understand that, okay, cheap food, what's that result in? It results in environmental problems, but we've exported those by buying cheap food from somewhere else. So, so we don't have to worry because we can screw up another part of the world and have cheap food. So it's not really cheap, is it? Because there's a cost somewhere else. Yeah. You know, and then there's the health implications of people eating cheap food. So the NHS, well, that gets socialised, that cost, so we don't feel it in our pockets. And there's an argument that that's progressive, that actually folks who, who, who need cheaper food, um, <clears throat> you know, they're getting their health care taken care of. But if it's making them ill, that's not really helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a time when we need more funding for our NHS, we should be looking at ways of reducing the costs and the burdens on it. So... Yeah, I think the whole myth of cheap food is there. And I think if we want to be progressive in terms of how we help people to afford better food, then we can we can do better, whether that's through food vouchers or whatever. But I think the first thing we can do, if you expect farmers in this country to compete without subsidy, then we've got to throw out all this cheap food that's produced not to the same standards that we expect our farmers to. It's just not a level playing field. Mm-hmm. And until we do that, we're going to continue to have problems with mental health, in the farming industry, um, with crazy statistics in terms of the professions, you know, in terms of that. Uh, and this is a policy thing. It's not something that we can change that much on farm whilst we're getting this competition from yeah. abroad. Yeah. And at the turn, putting it in sort of current context, you've got this just massive uncertainty. And I mean, like, for example, there's the Environment Bill and the Ag Bill, which there was a lot of work done at the time, yeah. but now it's completely, it's just sitting on the shelf who knows where we're going over the next few years? And that yeah. adds further pressure in farmers' minds in terms of planning and where you're going and yeah. know, how do you break that cycle? Exactly. And I think that actually getting to that point of kind of almost feeling helpless and like this is something I want to do. Is there a place for my family at this farm in the future? Can I provide that? And just a big question mark. I was at that point where I didn't know. And I think a lot of folks are in that boat. And that's, that was at that point, I guess, when you start you're looking everywhere for something. And that's where I looked and found holistic management mm-hmm. around 2012, I think it was. Maybe 2013, I can't quite remember. Uh, Red Allen Savery's book started implementing the grazing strategies in it. Did a course with Kurt Gadzia and went from there. But what I really liked about it the holistic management framework as a whole is it's it's not a grazing system. Mm. It's a business management system. Yeah. It's very mentioned in Will's podcast that yeah, everyone's obsessed with holistic grazing, but actually holistic management is more than that. Yeah. Well, Alan Savory himself has said every grazing system designed has failed. So holistic even holistic grazing system isn't a grazing system because it has to adapt. Yeah. You can't just apply a formula to ha- or a rest period or what you're going to do at different times at this time of year or everything's got to be adaptive and you've got to adapt your stocking rate you have to adapt and you, you know, make decisions on risk on your stocking rate and risk reward um, and I think it, it really one of the best things about it is it makes you test decisions there's specific decision testing questions is like I think I'm right in saying there's eight I'll get correct on that but I think there's at least eight so you make a decision and you test that decision with eight questions 
going back to what your goals are for the business, what your goals are for your, for your family, for your, you know, for your leisure time, you know, because if you end up divorced and lonely, yeah, you know, when we're talking about mental health, that's not a successful business, even if it's making money, mm. you know, so it's, it is important, you know, that essentially Alan Savage, you know, after years of advising businesses, has seen actually these are, these social or, uh, these social elements have an impact on whether the business succeeds or fails. So bring it right down to earth just for people who don't know, and I'm, yeah. I'm not sure about definitions usually, okay. but what, give me a definition of holistic grazing and holistic management. Holistic grazing is one of the tools that you have to, at disposed uh, for you in your business. So you can use that. And then within holistic grazing, there is... Uh, you can use mob grazing, which is one kind of grazing. You can use, use rotational grazing. Um, and pretty much it encompasses most, um, most kinds of grazing systems that you could think of. And you might vary between the two. But because one of the key things you're going to be looking at in terms of managing the business is increasing your resource base. So if you're ploughing and reseeding and effectively just throwing away organic matter every time you do that, plus the cost of doing it, you're not increasing your resource base. So the resilience of those soils and their ability to grow grass is being diminished, although you're putting more productive grasses and clovers, and then you can put fertiliser on to counter that. And maybe in the right climate, um, where you've got plenty of rain and nice free-draining ground, then maybe that's the right thing to do. But you test those decisions. And I think one of the things you look at, I often look at, is, is the marginal rate of return as well. So coming back to your question, so that's holistic grazing, yep. and that sits within holistic management, which is all about being really clear, because I could go and buy, really clear about your decision making. So I could go and buy a tractor, or I could decide to buy a topper, but I need to look at what my goal, real goals are for the business mm. and for my family. Yeah, and so, so it doesn't just become a shopping list. <laughs> exactly, we're all terrible, you yeah. know. I, my topper's nearly broken and I've been looking at toppers all the time and I can't think, oh, I really like that topper. <laughs> this Batwing one's I can, it's gonna save me this much time and I can work out how much time it's gonna save me because it's twice as wide and, and, um, and that's obviously really valuable to me, isn't it? Uh, but is it? Is that what I really need? If I have a certain amount of money to spend, what is the most impact on my business if I spend that money? And it probably isn't the topper. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you've got to look at all of those things and, and, and assess that. And that's really helpful because, you know, we all get sort of trapped into, into how we make those decisions. I did a, a training day up in Scotland the farm up there they they were producing the same amount of grass but saving about 40 grand a year on fertilizers just from changing the grazing system okay um and i think they had 350 cows and they i think there were three tractors associated with the farm business and they realized actually two of those tractors were unnecessary if they just changed how they managed the cows and so Things that we might think of as fixed costs are actually, they're not fixed costs, they're choices we've made. Mm-hmm. And one of the key things that when you're doing your financial planning and holistic management is to look at costs as inescapable costs. So there are costs that are just inescapable, you can't help. But can you produce the same with, with reducing that fixed cost? Because that, 
particularly for small farms, yet that fixed cost is really is a burden on on your unit of production essentially, and that's what sort of pushes us to high input systems, which are obviously they're not good cash flow wise. I mean, agriculture is possibly the worst possible cash flow business you could imagine. Um, so you spend all your money and you might get a return at the end of it. You might get to sell something and hopefully there's a margin. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, I mean, in summary, that holistic management really is about taking control and making sure that the business isn't running your life, that you're running the business. It's about considering your local community, your family and your bank account, absolutely, that's the central part of it. It's not sustainable if it doesn't pay. So um, it's, it's a change of mindset rather than anything else. Absolutely, yeah, I think I think so. And, and even to the extent of challenging you, there's, there's ways of challenging you within the systems, like aiming for a 50% margin and factoring that 50% profit on your turnover as your first cost when you do your financial planning. Mm-hmm. It's amazing the difference something as simple as that makes. How many of us do a cash flow forecast or we do a financial plan ahead? There's and a we look cash flow forecast that doesn't change a week after because you want something else. I know, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, don't, you just look at what your costs are yeah. and you project your costs forward. But if you've put that profit, and maybe you can make... I, I recommend people put the 50% profit in there because it's going to challenge you. And then let's see just how many of those costs you can get out to hit that target. Now, even if you don't get to 50, if you get to 20, 30%, at least you're moving forward. And we, we were in a position where we got down to 50 acres, we were renting land, we weren't necessarily doing that well. You know, we were just about getting by, breaking even, making money, some years, some years not. But once we actually really got control of those financials, it allowed us to take on land and expand knowing that we had a margin because it's kind of it's a bold leap if you if you're not making a margin on your suckler cows to go and expand you just you're just growing that loss yeah but if you even if you've got a small margin you might be producing less you might have to cut your idea of what production it what your production levels should be on that land but if you're making a margin you can expand and i think that that gives you confidence that gave me confidence with you know, younger kids got three kids. They're all interested. You know that I might be able to provide them with the option of coming in at some point. And I think the other thing is is being more creative about your pricing, because we're price takers. Obviously, in agriculture, it's a commodity game, and that's one of the reasons we went down the pedigree livestock route because it allowed us some control over the price yeah. we received. And I think we we aim to be inexpensive. But we've got a very low cost base, and we, you know, if we know what we're getting, then we know it gives us security. You know, we haven't got that. What the hell is the cattle prices doing at the moment? So, so I think it's just trying to take control of your business in in whatever way you can. To something that quite a few people talk to me about at the moment is CPD, continuing professional development. Yeah. Um, which is very much at the moment down to the individual yeah um who knows that there, there may be more formal schemes in future yeah um do you see i mean certainly holistic management would, would fall very very well into that yeah um if you were to be designing a cpd program for ag 
um, what would it look like and how often do you think farmers should look at themselves and their own training and, and, and development? I think it's quite a personal thing. Um, so probably the easiest thing for me is to talk about what me in terms of what I've done. In yeah, that. exactly. Um, but I think I found with the holistic management, it's such a big area and it's, it's a, quite a big mindset shift. Mm. I probably went on a three-day training course every year for four years. Okay. Even when I was training people, I was going on training courses and every time I revisited it, I got something more from it, you know. Um, and I remember one of the things I had, I'd missed at one event, I think, say the, say the training cost me, I don't know, 700 quid for three days, one, one, one of the training courses. And then one of the things was just this war on costs, go, and go, go to war on your costs. And, and so we went, come home, go to war on your costs and save three times the cost of the course. Yeah. So you spent three days away and you've just, you've trebled that return on that 750 quid or whatever yeah. it was. So that's, I think that's a good thing. If I was to design something, I actually think it sounds probably a bit trite, but I think people should just, if you look, people should just train holistic management and keep going back to it. Yeah. Um, and just keep updating yourself on it. Because if you look at the business management strategies, it's everything... Everything in there pretty much is pro- is included in most agriculture degrees, HMDs that people have done at Harper or wherever. Mm. It's all in there, but you just got to revisit it. And I think, but the key thing about it is those is those business management strategies and those financial management strategies that link back to your environmental goals, yep. your business goals, and your family, social, community goals, and making sure you're not you're screwing up any of those. And then you're building something that actually more of a community on farm, maybe if, if you, you know, if you don't have as many people working on the farm, are there ways to bring people in? You know, you're more part of the local community. Have you, you make, you're starting to make money. You can see your fit, your, your grass and your soils are improving. So you're growing more grass, you're building fertility. Suddenly that's moving in your, in the right direction. You real focus on genetics. So you've, you've got focused on the number one profit trait in your livestock, which is fertility. So suddenly your carving percentage is going up. You're selling more, you're selling more cattle or you're selling more lambs, and suddenly you start making those changes. And you can see everything starts once everything starts pointing in the right direction. It's it's a real change of mindset. You feel so much better, mm. you know, because you're not fighting nature or you're not fighting the industry, but it's. It's, it's a long time, you know, it takes time to do that, three or four, five years plus, mm. then probably a lifetime afterwards, you know, lifetime learning. So I think it's a good point about that. Um, I can't recommend holistic management enough. Um, I'm trying really hard not to be a consultant or a trainer. <laughs> I don't really want to be that. I want yeah, to be a farmer. You're falling down that line. <laughs> and uh, so I don't do I, I don't do consultancy as a rule, and I don't. I'm trying really hard not to do training. Uh, I do the odd speak speaking event, but even c- trying to cut them out because it's time away from farm and family, and, and actually when you look at what your goals are, it's not to you know not, not to spend time training folks. Sorry, but yeah. <laughs> um, I can't come to this part of the world without talking about TB. Yeah, um, 
Can you summarise for listeners what the situation is? I know that's a big, big ask, but can you summarise what the, what the situation is with TB at the moment, the badger cull, etc.? Yeah, uh, I can say what I know about it and what I think locally. I mean, there's guys locally going out, going out of cattle because of it, just fed up. Um, the TB cull area has been extended over a much larger area and you know uh, right across you know we all know what where those areas are that's all on the on the internet including this area um but i think for me it's i think policy there's been a huge policy failure for me from organizations like the nfu and the farming organizations to be honest the reason we get compensation is because it's a compulsory scheme because TB is a zoonosis, that is because it affects people as well as animals. So that's the only reason we get compensation, because this is the reason we have the restrictions is because of people, and the government puts those on, on us. And so the idea that we don't get compensated for the business losses as well as the individual animal losses, the fact that your business is closed down, the fact that you, you know, the fact you can't sell your product. Like what business would put up with, or industry put up with, someone saying, you can't sell your products? They just wouldn't. <laughs> and yet we sit here and take these table valuations. And the NFU, I mean, I, I really hope people sort of move on this. I was surprised. I thought, you know, I've got like, bugger, I've got like, whatever, 1,500 followers on Twitter. I put a thing out saying, we really need to compensate farmers for losses to their businesses as well as compensation for the animals yeah this is a big failure of the nfu and others it didn't get you know some some things get retreated retreated 50 times that got no interest i was really surprised at that yeah. I, I don't know why that is maybe it's timing or whatever but i think this is a big issue why the hell are we putting up with family farms losing their farms because of a government policy that are shutting essentially shutting businesses down if they want to protect the public, you know, we're doing everything we can with the pre-movement tests, with everything, with, you know, farmers, they've got good, you know, good welfare. You've got the best welfare in the world. We absolutely should be compensated if businesses are closed down. We're really lucky here we've, on the farm here. We've never had TB. Um, even It's around about relatives nearby, farms nearby have had it on and off and continue that sort of continuing picture but we haven't had it but the the spectre it holds over the industry the cattle industry where there is tb problems and the fact that we've got all these issues with mental health you know this is you know mental health is is a health and safety issue and in health and safety everyone is liable including the government and we have a huge problem in farming um mental health illness is considered in law the same as physical injury. So if there's a policy causing physical injury, or essentially mental illness to people, and I believe TB is, the TB policy is, rather, then I think there's a duty. It's criminal negligence in criminal law, and I think there's a duty on government to sort that out um, because what they're imposing... And I, and I just think... I just don't know why it's not the of the livestock sector of the NFU, why it's not their number one policy mm. issue is to get compensation for businesses that have lost that have lost their income. I just find it bizarre. Right, one minute soapbox turn. I'm going to say, listeners, in, 
in the first time in, in one minute soapbox history, which isn't that long. But anyway, we've uh, we've managed to achieve through the podcast to get through every single subject um, on the list. So thank you, Rob. I'm going to let you off the hook. This thank time. you. Thank but you. Honestly, thank you so much for that. It's been yeah really great to go through all those topics. No, really interesting yeah. to talk to you, and thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. Rob Havard in Worcestershire. Next time, I'll be heading to Oxfordshire to speak to first-generation farmers James and Katie Allen. A reminder that you can listen to all previous episodes at thinkingcountry.com, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or selected episodes at eatfarmnow.com. Big thanks to the Mercer Charitable Foundation for supporting this episode and all the road trip episodes, to Tom Bland for his help with the production, and of course to you for listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Share it with someone so we can spread the word. That will be great. Um, And leave a comment. In the meantime, I'll look forward to you joining me next time on Meet the Farmers. 